Mama. This is the Doctor Mama podcast with your host, Doctor Alice Coughlin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Doctor Mama podcast. This is episode three for December seventeenth, twenty twenty. Hooray! Welcome. Now, you might notice that the uh, lovely Dr. Alice Kaufman, your host of this uh, podcast, and my lovely wife and uh, mother of my two lovely children, um, is sounding a little bit different than sometimes. That's because, as it was inevitable at some point, because uh, she is a working doctor, um, Alice is coming to me and you and everyone from Lawrence, Massachusetts, her workplace. Hello, Alice. Oh, hey, hey. So how does it feel to be recording a podcast uh, on your phone sat in your office? Um, so I'm actually currently up in the res admin suite, which is um, much less populated than the resident workspace. So I feel very special because I'm like in the cool part of the building. <laughs> Literally cool. I hope not, though, because it is December. It's kind of cold. It is not cold. I am wearing my fleece and I am wearing scrubs and very comfortable. And one thing I've noticed about wearing a mask, having to wear face masks at this time of year, is it also makes it a lot warmer. Yes, my nose is very warm. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate the concern for the warmth of my nose. Alice, the red nose doctor, had a very okay. warm no, nose. My no. nose is not red. My <laughs> nose is blue because I have a normal mask on. And most of the time I'm wearing an Envo, which is also blue. <laughs> What you can't tell, uh, you lovely podcast listeners, is where I am currently is my little uh, filming studio for my music things, which is currently on a Christmas set. And I'm wearing a Christmas hat with a Christmas tree and lots of fairy lights. Which is lights, also so. in the corner of our bedroom, which makes our bedroom <laughs> very festive and very happy. <laughs> Until I have to do a gig at like 7 o'clock at night and you want to go to bed. I don't actually go to bed at 7 o'clock at night. I wish I went to bed at 7 o'clock at night, but I have two small children. 8, 8.30? 9? Nine, nine thirty, maybe. Ten, ten thirty. <laughs> Depends on when I finish my notes. Anyhow, um, we just want to say another thank you to everyone who's got in contact and sort of just sort of reached out and given us uh, feedback and said they're listening to the podcast. It's really, really lovely that uh, this is starting to reach people, even people we don't know, which is kind of cool. No, it's kind of terrifying, but also amazing. There's like people that I have no idea who they are, and they reach out to me and tell me that they've listened to me talking and it literally like hadn't occurred to me that anybody who wasn't one of my co-residents might listen to this um and that's like so cool but also like scary because they might think I'm weird but that's okay because I am weird but I want to give a special shout out to my co-residents because they are so amazing and have given me so much lovely feedback both positive and constructive and um oh you haven't shared like that the with kindest me yet people in the world is this where we have the debrief on air right go on then what's what's the constructive what do we need to improve yeah we're not doing that less 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 english <laughs> accent more i don't know yours <laughs> more accordion more Always accordion, more accordion. <laughs> <laughs> i think that comes into oh no that came into last week's episode of more accordion yeah <laughs> Anyway, talking about episodes, uh, what do we have coming up this week, my lovely? So this week, speaking of co-residents, we have the amazing Dr. Sarah Castle. So she was a resident in my program who graduated just this past year, mid-pandemic. Um, and she is the mother of two beautiful and amazing children who are 
really, really two of the most like adorable and lovely human beings in the world. Um, and Sarah herself was definitely one of my closest mentors throughout training as the only other doctor mama in my program for most of my training. Now there is another one, which is super exciting in the intern class, but she was the only one, the only other one for the past two years. And, um, she was always the one I would turn to when I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like missing my children and I'm on nights for two weeks and I'm miserable. And how am I even supposed to find time to pump because I'm on labor delivery and people keep having babies. And <laughs> why are they having babies on labor delivery when I'm tired and I need to pump, <laughs> you know, that kind of good intern logic. So I'm really excited to bring everybody this episode because Sarah, who gave me super amazing and um, enlightening and heartening advice throughout the past two years, can now share that advice with all of you. And one thing that is rather lovely about this episode, and hopefully is not uh, too distracting, is you can hear her lovely children in the background being homeschooled as it were in the uh, coronavirus times and uh, school. Technically not homeschooled, dis distance well, learning. True. Or what's distance it called? Um, uh, yeah, remote, remote school. Remote school, that's the word, isn't it? Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they're being remote schooled in the in the background, so you can hear uh, some occasional uh, happy and uh, sad children. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, I do hope you enjoy the episode. Um, I say I. I'm. I mean we. I'm sure Alice hopes you enjoy the episode too. I don't care at all. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Enjoy it. I hope you enjoy it. It's great. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right. So if you want to start wherever you feel comfortable with, tell us your story of how you became a doctor mama. Well, so I guess I would start somewhere around the time that I made the decision to pursue medicine, which meant kind of changing the whole direction of my life because I was going to be in academics. I was going to be a professor of linguistics or sociolinguistics. I was living in Barcelona, Spain. I was teaching yoga. I had this whole different life. And I had made the decision to pursue medicine as a way of kind of trying to bridge some of the health promoting mindfulness based practices I picked up in yoga and my love for science and my analytical mind and yada yada. And so in order to make that happen, I had to kind of restart the whole pre-med process because I hadn't done that undergraduate. So I moved back to the States and I moved to California. And that's where I ended up meeting my husband, who is actually my college roommate's brother, who just happened to move out to Oakland like a week before I did. So it was just very fortuitous and... Um, we eventually kind of got together, started hanging out, and then lo and behold, <laughs> we got along very well, and that's how that happened. Um, and so I was wrapping up all of my pre-med stuff and moving into that glide year, you know, where you're doing all your applications and interviews and stuff with a post-bac, which tends to happen as like a whole separate year by just the way that the academic calendar falls. Um and it's kind of a funny story, actually. Um, I enrolled in a research study for the Silk's diaphragm. 
I'm going to just tell this story and then I'll decide later if I want it to be public, but it's pretty funny. <laughs> right. um, so I enrolled in this research study for the silk diaphragm, which was meant to be this way that women could have access to diaphragm as a contraceptive method without necessarily having to have a gynecologic visit for a fitting. It was supposed to be this like one size fits all and it was more user friendly in the way that it was designed. It was easier to insert and remove. And they were also doing a research study about um, and a uh, spermicide that had antimicrobial properties, so maybe it would be somewhat protective against um, sexually transmitted infections anyway. So I decided to enroll in this study. Um, and it turns out that that form of contraception did not work very well for me <laughs> because I got pregnant with Liliana. And um, that was like this huge kind of turning point in my life and in my, you know, now husband's life. And, you know, I always knew that I wanted to have, I won't say always, I would say somewhere in my mid twenties, I realized that I definitely did want to have kids be part of my life. Um, and I knew that that was always going to be something that was going to be challenging to fit in with the rest of my life plans if I was going to go into medicine, particularly starting that path later, kind of going back into it from pre-med when I was already in my mid-20s. Um, so it was a really difficult time with a lot of soul searching and trying to figure out, you know, what the heck we were going to do. And I think one of the things that I realized is that, you know, there's no time in the next 10, 15 years that it was going to be easy to have a kid. So even though, you know, just finishing my pre-med, I literally just turned in my primary applications for interviews. I was like on this path to start medical school. And so it was this complete curveball. But I realized there's never going to be a time when this is going to be easy to do. And I know I want to do it. Um, so that's kind of how the journey began. Um, and what I ended up doing was um, deferring my start of med school for a year so, so you that I finished could be... the application. Yeah, I finished the application process. Okay. I, you know, I actually did my interview for Duke um, over Skype because I was in California and I was like five months pregnant and I don't think they knew. And it was like, I was like holding my hand like this, like over <laughs> my belly here because I was like, I know if she kicks me in the ribs, I'm going to like do something weird. <laughs> So I'm going to like put my hand here when she wakes up and starts moving around. So she like doesn't kick. Me. <laughs> um, so I got accepted to Duke and then I let them know that I needed some more time because basically, you know, Greg, my husband needed time to finish paying off all his loans and he had a job that would help him do that out in California. And I wanted the time to be home and set us up better kind of financially for that. Um, and they were okay with that. So I was able to defer the start of med school for a year. And that meant that I was able to be home with Liliana for about 18 months by the time I started med school. So the initial period I was um, home and Greg was working. Um, 
And I'm really grateful for having had that time. So that was a lovely thing that kind of worked out. I will say that my transition into motherhood was pretty rocky and um, there were a lot of parts of it that were pretty rough, I would say. Um, I think, you know, some of it was just um, the birth itself was kind of crazy. It was like three days in labor and then I had a C-section where I'd like kind of you know, convinced myself I was going to be this amazing like yoga mom who's just going to like dance the baby out and everything would be so gorgeous. And then it was not like that. <laughs> um, and living in like Berkeley in the Bay Area where like, you know, so much of your worth can be determined by like how crunchy granola you are, I think was not helpful with that. Um, but I think that there was also a lot that was just it was such a transition in my whole identity, you know, like I went from being someone who was very like invested in all of the things I was doing and academia and in yoga and then with medical school prep and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, none of that occupied my day to day, right? I was just home with this little human being who like constantly needed my attention, but not in the same way as anyone else in my life that ever, ever needed my attention, right? So my whole identity was different on the real day-to-day -day basis. And I think that that was really disorienting in a lot of ways. Um, and we were also like across the country from, you know, family and that kind of thing because we were in California. So I had some great friends in California, but it still was a little bit isolating. Um, so I definitely had to deal with some postpartum depression and I think it's informed how I work with moms as a physician, um, not least of all, just because of all the expectations that moms have for themselves, because I think that that definitely exists. And I think the ones that I had for myself or the ones that the people around me had may be different from the ones that my patients have, or it depends on the community you work in and that kind of thing. But all in all, there's a lot of expectations that moms internalize or may have come in with themselves that then when that's not met, it can create a lot of um, tension and a lot of upset. But I think there's also this reluctance to kind of reach out about that. And I think part of it is just because you just crack it up to, oh, I'm tired and everything's crazy. And it's just crazy to be a mom with a baby and that and the other. But also this idea that like, oh, and it's so great and beautiful and wonderful. And it's like not supposed to be like really upsetting and all that. So I always really encourage moms that they should not be afraid to say something sooner because for me looking back I was like why did I wait so many months to like just go to therapy you know like that would have been so helpful at two months like why did I wait till eight months or something like that you know um but I think that that period had a lot that was really great about it and particularly I'm happy that I had the opportunity to be there so often when Liliana was little, but it was also difficult in a lot of ways. Well, it's not, it's not time off, is it? Because mm -hmm. it's exhaust, it's exhausting being a new parent. Like It's totally exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it's in this way, I feel like, you know, my, my whole notion of like attention, 
and like mindful attention has been like fundamentally shifted since becoming a parent. And it's a new challenge to my mindfulness since becoming a parent, because when you have particularly a little baby in the house, it's like, yes, babies are great. Yes, babies are fascinating. Yes, babies are super cute. But you can't be wrapped with attention of an infant endlessly. Like, yes, it's cute and it's wonderful and it's a miracle and it's your baby and blah, blah, blah. But like, you're not going to stare at this child for 10 (laughs) hours and be like completely wrapped. And I mean, I guess maybe there's people out there who feel that way, but I am not that person. (laughs) And I'm not going to like pretend to be that person. And so, but at the same time, it's this little helpless little baby. So you have to like be paying enough attention, right? That you're going to stop this baby from like hurting itself. And you have to like make sure it's got everything it needs. And is it fed? And is it changed? And is it da da da? So it's like you constantly have to be paying some attention, but not, it doesn't occupy 100% of your attention. So like your attention is strangely split all of the time that you're like home with this infant. And I think I found that really challenging too, because I ended up doing a lot of like magazines and like internet and things like that, because it was like, I just want to do something that like requires a a shallow depth of my attention to the point where like when the baby starts crying or when the baby gets sick of tummy time or when the baby gets sick of whatever toy or the swing or whatever it is that she's doing, um, I can drop whatever I'm doing for those five or 10 minutes and go and be with the baby. Um, this is where I this is where I'm now addicted to podcasts but that's when when we had our first podcasts um were like the thing. And, yeah, that's funny yeah. actually me too. I I started listening to podcasts while being home with Oliver. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that makes sense, right? But I also feel like it's like I haven't I'm not a good reader anymore. Like one of the things I want to do now that my kids are o- older is get back into like reading novels and stuff like that because I feel like I just put that aside because the amount of like uninterrupted time it requires for me to like become absorbed in a novel like I think I'm also a little bit like I don't want to say ADHD but I'm like a little bit like I can't just like multitask and move my attention around really easily like it takes me a little time to like get absorbed in something so I just haven't been able to do things that require that level of like time investments because I get interrupted perpetually And I think that started, you know, as soon as I was a mom of an infant and it's continued in different ways. But I think that that was another thing that was a really hard transition, just feeling like your time is very much not your own really ever. Um, But I mean, the, the flip side is that I was in the Bay Area and it was gorgeous. And I actually started doing these, um, leading these hiking yoga classes because someone started a business over there and hiking yoga and he's like I think I don't know if it's still going on but he was like spreading it to other cities and that kind of thing and so I was doing a lot of Berkeley hikes so I would just put her in the um oh my gosh what's the the one that you like wrap all around yourself the, that one called oh what we have that that wrap the green wrap oh it's been like Moby, two years Moby, yes, yeah, it, yeah. Moby <laughs> so we had like all the different carriers and the Moby wrap was great for the really long walks because it like it was this time investment to get it all rigged up, but then it's like really cozy. So I would get her in the Moby wrap and I would just like wander around the Berkeley Hills and come up with like paths that I was going to like lead the classes through. Um, and so that was a really nice way to like get out and be in the sun and like have a little bonding and all that kind of stuff. And we did a lot of like mommy baby yoga classes and that was lovely. 
And so there were a lot of things about it that were really great, but I, you know, I also just think it was a reckoning in some sort of ways in terms of that transition. Um, so then um, we moved to Durham and Liliana was about 18 months, like I said, when I started medical school, um, not quite. And um, I don't know, I, I'm, tr I'm trying to think of like what I have really interesting to say about that initial phase. I think that there weren't, I think I was the only mom in my class and there were like a couple of dads, like there were a lot of Mormons in my class and that were all men and some of them were dads already. Um, but I think I was the only mom when I started. Um, and so that was kind of like a strange thing just to feel like, cause I think when I, when I started the post-bac pre-med, I was all worried that like people weren't going to be in the same life situation and no one was going to like see eye to eye with me and it was going to be so weird and everyone was going to be strange. And, <laughs> um, but then it ended up being like all these like really cool laid back, interesting, you know, Northern California people who also came into this path non-traditionally. And so everything worked out really well. And then when I kind of hit medical school, it was a little bit more like back in that traditional realm where there were a lot of folks who just like went straight through from college and, you know, hadn't really done a whole lot of other stuff except for, you know, maybe like Teacher America or they'd done some sort of thing like that. And so, and a lot of people were kind of younger and they weren't at that point where they were starting their families yet. And so I felt a little bit more kind of apart a little bit. Um, uh, so that was kind of tough. How how did you find it when you when you first started, and uh, how how was the support from the medical school itself? Because I know you're talking about like peers, and you know establishing relationships with peers for helping bring up the children is really important. But obviously, you're coming in with an 18 month old. How how was how was the support from the school when you started? Um, I mean. I think, I don't know, it feels like when I'm thinking about it, I'm trying to think of it in either direction. Like, I don't think I really sought out that much additional support, but I also don't think I was like impeded by the way that it worked. Like, I know I've heard, you know, stories about people who've struggled for various reasons in medical school, like various personal reasons, and have felt like they're, um, like the administration or the faculty of the school was really unhelpful and really like, we just want to make everything look good on paper and we don't want you to like mess this up and like go figure your life out. And I never felt that way at Duke, but I also don't feel like I went in a lot being like, I'm in a crisis and I need all this extra help and all this extra support. Um, so it's hard for me to say. I know that, so I was in this primary care leadership track, which was, in, I was actually one of the first classes that actually did the whole thing longitudinally from year one. Um, and so we had kind of like a tight knit subgroup that had all of these, you know, mentors in primary care who were leading mostly family medicine, who were leading the kind of um, track. And there was like a little small group of us that did activities together. Um, so that became a built in source of support. And I got to see also from the beginning how you know, family-friendly family medicine is, right? You go to all these little gatherings and everyone has their kids and mostly like the attending level 
kind of mentors would they be there with their young families but I could see from the beginning that that was compatible but I kind of knew that too going in I, I knew going in that I wanted to do primary care and probably family medicine so um, I was kind of familiar with it what but that was like de facto a nice little bit of a built-in support kind of like auto um, and let's see so then I, I guess it was around the end of second year. So the way that Duke works is that you have like a year and change of all the academic work kind of like compressed in, and then your second year is your clerkships. And then your third year is a research year and your fourth year is the same like rotation sub I, whatever. So my second year, I was started trying to get pregnant so that I could be pregnant in the and have the kid in the research year um, and that ended up being harder than we thought so the first time I had this like unplanned like surprise and then the second time we were having difficulty getting pregnant and I think probably a lot of that is that I was super stressed out. I lost, I was like at my lowest weight ever when I was doing clerkships because it's like, you know, you do the 16 hour surgery day and you have like a smoothie all day and you're like not, you know, <laughs> not nourishing yourself appropriately. Um, and so I just think that, you know, I was not in the best health probably at that time. Um, but I remember it being really tough, like month after month like waiting and hoping and I was doing all the stuff with centering pregnancy and helping those moms deliver and like wishing that I could have another baby and then you know, Mother's Day came and went my birthday came and went like all this stuff and that was pretty stressful um and so it got to the point where we we're right up against that year mark of trying and I was had gotten some labs already and they were like scheduling me to do the HSG um as like a fertility workup um and I was starting to do all this random stuff. It was like not a very controlled experiment. I was like throwing the kitchen sink at it. I was like doing acupuncture and like castor oil packs. And I started taking like Vite, like Chase Berry and like all this different stuff. And I don't know, something worked because then I got pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> and going back a quick second, what was mm -hmm. your childcare setup during those first two years? Oh, yeah. So Liliana was at Duke Children's Campus, which was like for employees of Duke. And it was like on the Duke campus. Um, and it was, it was free? Lovely. Was it expensive? It was not cheap. <laughs> <laughs> it was not cheap, but it was cheaper than any sort of in-home setup would have yeah. been by like a long shot. So it was the, it was we were in an interesting situation right in which we were just living off loans right at that right. time yeah um and so we just you know factored that in um i can imagine having having on campus as well like that's going to yeah, add so much really better nice. time for your yeah. your own your own time with your children your mental health there's like you're not driving one place and another place like that seems like an ideal yeah. setup like yeah it was really lovely yeah. it was like super convenient it's right there the hours were like you know friendly hours for professionals right they started early they closed later so that you could like fit in whatever window of time you needed um 
so yeah, it was really convenient. And they, they were also, it was through um, Bright Horizons. Mm. It was Bright Horizons. And I think, you know, they, you know, like many daycare places, they go through like iterations where they have this like ebb and flow of how much it's like a corporate top down kind of enforcement of what they want their codes and their standards to be and when we started it was a little bit more free-flowing but still had a lot to offer um so it was kind of an ideal setup i think later on there were some changes and they started having to wear these t-shirts and there seemed to be a little bit more like top down like people who aren't actually on the ground making decisions and it seemed like the morale was a little bit lower but initially just the people were seemed really happy to be there they were really into the academics like we had we got all these fabulous like papers and binders for her that had all the like oh this is under like gross motor and look at what she's doing and this is social like this is what she's doing but at the same time it wasn't like stuffy like she was having fun um so i really did enjoy that environment for her um i loved uh gosh what it must have been when she was three machine and miss tamika oh my god i still remember them they were hilarious they were hilarious they came to her birthday party and they were just so funny um so she had some really good teachers uh which was nice because i mean i could fill a whole podcast talking about like mom guilt with daycare so but the the mom guilt on the whole was better <laughs> at the duke children's campus yeah than was my experience at Little Sprouts. Um, but anyway. Um, so, yes, that was daycare. And then Bowden. And then, you got, so, and then you got pregnant with Bowden. Yeah, so I ended up not having the baby my research year, but I was pregnant my research year, which is actually also really nice because my research year was essentially a, a year of office work. I was working in the Duke Integrative Center from like 9 to 5, basically, or 8 to 5. Um, at a desk so it was like a lot less physically taxing than it would have been to be doing like rotations and clerkships and stuff while I was pregnant Um, so that actually worked out pretty nicely Um, and then I got to do a mindfulness course during that time as like part of my research Um, so that was really nice to do that Greg and Greg did it with me so we got to um, both have some practice in mindfulness before the second one came along which we desperately need again i have the cds still <laughs> i've been meaning to like break yeah. back into that um but it was lovely and then um what ended up happening is that it's actually again it, things worked out really well just the flow of events because at duke you can expand your research year into other research studies or there's like two different tracks that you can like extend a second year of research and you don't there's like a nominal fee like you don't you're not paying tuition um but you still like don't have to pay back your loans um so i basically just got to extend my research to two years and then work from home after Bowdoin was born so essentially, and Greg was doing, you know, he had started his business. I guess I never really mentioned that part, but when we moved to North Carolina, Greg took that opportunity to start um, 
a mixing and mastering, basically a music production business, because he'd been working in IT at a high school, but he'd been really interested in music production through his experience, like being in a band and his friend had opened up a mastering business. And he was like, you know, if I'm going to do it, I'm totally uprooted anyway. You know, we're in this new place, you know, let's make it happen. And we had ended up buying a house um, and using like med school loans for part of the down payment. It was like this whole funky little thing, but it still made sense financially to do it that way in Durham because it was such a buyer's market at the time. And it was so much, made so much more sense than renting. Um, and we got like a homeowner's rebate that he used to turn the garage into like a studio space. He put up like drywall and all that stuff. So he started his business and he was getting that off the ground. Um, and so he was working from home the whole time we were living in Durham. So when we were home with Bowdoin, um, we basically were like splitting three jobs among the two of us. <laughs> so, you and know, did you have any his... time off or were you like at, right after he was born, did you ever get to take like a maternity leave or were you always still working, but you were working from home? I think so he was born September 1st. I think that I started doing stuff again. I want to say like November, maybe. I mean, basically what I did is I had this, uh, my research really needed the two years because I designed an entire IRB protocol and I designed the whole intervention that I was testing, which was a study of creating like a free telephonic health coaching service for, um, kids who were going to the pediatric obesity clinic and for people who went to this um, nonprofit for low-income residents in Durham. So I was trying to create like a free service for them and pilot how that would work and then do some like qualitative testing and some basic, very, very basic measures of how effective it was. So it actually really did like design that, create an IRB, roll it out, have it go on for three months and then look at the data. I needed that time anyway. But it was also very much like you could pick up and put down, right? So I think I picked it up again in November, but I was doing that phase. I was mostly in the data analysis phase at that point. I had to do all these like um, transcriptions to do like qualitative analysis and all that kind of stuff and like look at all the data and run it in SPSS and blah, blah, blah. So it was very much like on my own time, but I had to kind of like make sure that there was like time enough to kind of get all the pieces together. Um, so I was home and then I started back up again doing stuff, but, and then Greg could kind of decide a little bit how much work to take on or not based on that. How did you do that transition? Cause like doing, doing a transition back to work when you're actually going somewhere, I feel is a lot easier. And I think we're all experiencing this. Now we're doing more work from home during COVID is how did you do that transition? How did you deal with that mentally as well as physically, the, the practical doings of that? Because working from home with a new baby that you want to be spending all your time with is like, I feel like it's impossible sometimes. So. Yes. <laughs> um, oh, hold on just one second. Liliana, would you mind just either using your headphones or just going to the other room so they don't have background noise? I know you're about to sign off. She's got an early release day from her remote schooling today. Uh, 
Yeah. Don't worry, it's, it's, a, it's a podcast about parenting. Like, yeah, it's, you know, it's a usual thing. Yeah, yeah. On her remote school <laughs> class in the background. <laughs> see, what we're, see, this is what we're doing. This is how we're, how we're yeah. rolling. Um, so, yes. So, I find that very, very difficult. My husband is much better at that than I am. Greg is very good at, like, having 20 minutes somewhere, an hour somewhere else, stealing a little bit of time. I can do this from home. This needs to be done in the studio. He's pretty good at that. And like I said before, I need a little bit more like time, bookend time to get like absorbed in the project that I'm doing and make my little list and get myself like oriented. So I found it very challenging because, you know, I would need a half day at the least, if not a full day to really get stuff done. And he was the kind of one who could be like, here, hold the baby for 20 minutes. I just got to finish something. I have to do like three edits and then I'll like come get the baby again. Um, so I think it was easier for him to kind of balance that than it was for me. Um, but, you know, we did our best to kind of make a plan of like, all right, this day I really need, I'm going to be, or I had sometimes had to leave, you know, I'll be like, I'm just going to go off and be somewhere else and I'll like pump or whatever. And like, you know, I'll be back at this time more or less. So we had to be a little bit more intentional about making those kinds of plans. That being said, I feel like I, that's still like a work in progress, but I do think it's really important for parents that are juggling parenting and a like high intensity job that has lots of hours is just having meetings and like coming up with plans and knowing that they're like they have to be flexible by necessity and they have to be able to change but being like now we have this like whiteboard that I'm writing my shifts down on and we try to like kind of have these Sunday talks we're like what does this week look like for both of us and try to kind of figure out which can be hard in medicine because Sunday is not always like the beginning of the week. Sometimes it's like the days all kind of bleed together and Sunday is as busy as any other day. Um, but as best you can to have some sort of regular time that you check in and you're like, okay, this is what I'm hoping to like do this week. And this is what I'm expected to do this week. And what does it look like for you? And how can we make this work? Um, is super helpful. And I think when Bowdoin was a baby, we were kind of trying to do that, but we didn't necessarily have like a system in place, which probably would have been helpful if we had more of a system in place. I mean, it's all just a learning curve, though, isn't it? You always look back and go, ah, oh, the stuff I'm doing now would have been so useful. Yeah. <laughs> like... yeah, yeah, absolutely. Totally. Um, so that was that. And then when he was, I guess, about just shy of a year, um, then he started at the daycare because I was starting my sabai. Um, and he went to Duke Children's Campus, and I also loved his teachers there. Um, on the whole, it was great. The only tricky thing was the whole cloth diaper thing because we did, like, cloth diapers with both of them for, like, some period of time. Um, and with Bowdoin, we, because we had, like... Um, a nice line outside in our yard we did the like ones that because I think with her we'd done like a cloth diaper service in Oakland but with him we got the little like insert things that you like snap into the shells and yada yada um and so we were using that for him and like the daycare was not really into that like they acted like, oh yeah, sure, whatever, yeah. And then they'd be like, oh, he like keeps getting rashes with these. Like he can't 
use it. I'm like, well, it keeps growing rashes, but they're not changing them now. (laughs) (laughs) So it was one of those things where we like didn't want to make their lives like too crazy. Um, So I think we switched to some like compostable one, but then we didn't actually compost them. So it's kind of useless. Um, But I think on the whole, again, my experience there was mostly positive. Um, And was Liliana in school at that point? So she ended up the last year we were in Durham, she was in kindergarten at the public school. Um, And that was also kind of like a mixed bag. Like I think she was definitely ready for kindergarten. um, And I think from like an academic standpoint, it was fine. Um, I think that her, I don't know if it was just her kindergarten class or I don't know, but she, there were a lot of issues I think with like discipline within the class which it seemed like my perception was that a lot of the teacher's energy had to go into that and um, trying to come up with strategies to like keep everybody kind of on task. And I think that that wasn't as positive in this experience. And it seemed like just from what I heard, like her teacher was having to deal with a lot and was feeling kind of stressed. And um, I just remember this one story where, um it was like they had these like red like traffic light like green yellow red where you'd get like a yellow card if you were kind of like not doing so great but you could like redeem yourself and like a red card was like bad like you were bad that day or something and if you got too many red cards it'd be like negative consequences and if you got like green cards all week you could like go shopping at the end of the week and like get a little toy or something like that and it was just these weird like carrot stick incentives that I think was just the way that the teachers could like maintain sanity. But there was one time when like a kid, a girl in her class had gotten like a couple red cards that week. And then at the end of the week, everyone was having ice cream and like, she didn't get ice cream because she'd had like red cards and she just started like crying. And I was like, this is so needlessly traumatizing. (laughs) What's going on? Like, she's five. She doesn't understand that something she did two days ago is the reason that she, like, doesn't have ice cream and all of her peers have ice cream. And, oh, my God, she's going to have to work this out in therapy in, like, 15 years. (laughs) So, I don't know. I think that when you kind of, like, let your child out into the world of school, there's always a little bit of, like, nervousness about how it's all going to go. And I think that, you know, I personally... I feel pretty enthusiastic about public school from like a philosophical perspective. I think that it's like a very essential institution that we need to invest in as a society. Um, And I think our public schools are really stressed out right now. Um, Well, right now, particularly, (laughs) but in general, over the past decades. Um, And so, you know, I think that I encountered that through her experience of like transitioning to kindergarten that I saw that like, additional pressures being placed on the public school setting um with her yeah Um, and how did during that that um fifth fourth year of medical school how did your rotations work did you do any sub eyes that you had to travel for how did you make that fit into your family life yeah so um 
my sabai, so I didn't do an away sabai. My sabai experience is weird because I did my sabai at Duke and they don't have inpatient. So it was like oh. this strange non-inpatient That's a sabai. lovely. Um, yeah, that, yeah, let's let's just go back and go back in time and do that again. That sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> um so I didn't do any away rotations. Um I did have to travel for interviews in like the fall. Um so I think at that point what was going on in terms of like breastfeeding and stuff. I know that with Liliana, we I breastfed her until she was about 22 months and with Bowdoin, it was around 20. But like at that point, I think it was the kind of thing where like, oh, you can just like pump once in a while and make sure you like kind of still have a little bit of milk going on if no one's like depending on it for their nutrition kind of situation. Did you bring um, them with you on any of your trips for interviews or did they mostly stay home with Greg and you'd go? How did that work? Um, they stayed home. I'm trying to think because I went up to New England in like October, November, and then I made one trip to the West Coast December. And I think I made a trip in January. That's when I ended up taking step two. And I remember it was like all folded into or the, you know, the CS one where yeah. you have to go. I think it was all folded into that January. I don't know. Trying to so that but I definitely had to go out into the West Coast at one point by myself. Um, and that yeah. was when Bowdoin was about like two, two and a half? No. One and a half. He, right. One and a half. Closer okay. to a little less. Like Not quite. Okay. One and a half. One and a bit. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. So I think um, it was just a lot with Greg. Greg, you know, I think over time has just been the one I've had to rely on to be flexible. Right. And that's, I think, been, you know, the, the upside of that is that he's like freelance throughout his whole thing. And so he has some built in flexibility to his world where he can like take on more or less work and he can kind of control a little bit what he's doing and what he's willing to kind of like put in front of him on his plate in, tor- in terms of what else is going on in his life. Um, but that means that like for him, that's challenging because like in terms of his career growth, he has to like slow down his career growth essentially in order to support what I need to get my stuff done. And so I think that it was kind of this understanding that we had over my training that, you know, I was going to need to lean on him for things like that. Like when it's interview time, you have to be the one like, you know, picking up and dropping off and being the single parent for that, you know, week or whatever it is that I'm away. And when it's like my surgical rotation time, I just disappear. And when it's like, blah, blah, blah time, I'm doing this. And when it's step time, I'm studying for, you know, eight hours a day or whatever. And I think that he's done a pretty good job overall of being able to show up for that. Um, But I think that like, it has meant that his career has to had to be kind of, I don't know, I would say back burnered, but like, slowed down. 
you know, like I wouldn't say like slam on the brakes, but it's like, you know, when you go down the Alpine slide and you can kind of like pull the brake a little, so you're kind of like not going so fast yeah. down the hill. Yeah. It's kind of like, he's had to like do that a little bit with his career just to be available to do all of the things that he might get called upon to do. Like when I get called in for backup or whatever's going on. Um, so or when a kid like is sick and can't go to school, you're not going to be taking that kid to work with you. Right. Yeah. Right. Like he's the one that has the flexibility so that oh, it falls on him. Right. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, true during interview season as well. Um, and um, and some of it was just like kind of financial wise. There were a lot of situations in which it wouldn't make sense for like the four of us to all go to something yeah. when I could just go by myself. Right. It just didn't like that wouldn't be feasible for us financially to do. And a lot of the places you were going were like a plane ride away. Like you right. Just exactly. Driving down the road. Exactly. Like I interviewed at Duke and UNC, but all the rest of my interviews were like a flight away. Um, how did you find that? Cause I'm, I'm a touring musician, so I get those points where I'm away for like a weekend or a week, sometimes a bit longer. And you kind of go through that kind of mental health stage of like, oh no, I miss, really miss my children. Then you go through that point of like, oh, I've got a moment of time where I'm not doing this bit of work or, yeah. I'm, or I'm suddenly, I've got this time to sleep. How, how did you, how, how did you in, enjoy and not enjoy that experience of being away? <laughs> Um, yes. So in terms of like, when I get to do stuff on my own, I definitely, I think that like, well, I'm now kind of judging it, I guess, by residency. And that's kind of like a different bag. But like, I feel like, because of residency, and all of the like 24s and night floats and all of the different ways in which you're kind of like your whole schedule is based around what you're doing not with the family and rather than with the family that like I'm a little bit more used to being in that zone and so when I am like off traveling or doing something like that I don't necessarily feel like oh ooh, you know <laughs> like usually it's like oh, okay I have some stuff to do that I have to do when I'm traveling and this and that um but there there are times in which it shows up it's usually around sleep right it's like oh i can like go to sleep and sleep and get up and have that whole experience be uninterrupted and like i get to decide within the parameters of whatever it is i'm doing on this trip i get to decide what those hours are um that's a big deal that's sure. the thing that comes up the most between cuz we, we were talking before about um when when alice um has to go on nights um just because of where we live situation she often will stay away for the week of nights and she said like it's the sleep it's the sleep that's yeah. the most amazing bit the, i sleep all yeah. day and it's the yeah. best sleep i ever get right yeah <laughs> i'm working nights and i sleep for eight hours straight from like 9 a.m to 5 p.m it's amazing yeah. right right i think and i think you know some of that's just because that's the piece, even if you're working like a 12 hour day or a 16 hour day, like you still come and see the kids and sleep and that whole yeah. piece of the like kids getting in bed and the kids waking up and your sleep and them getting up in the middle of the night, that's still something that's like perpetually part of your existence. And so when you go away traveling, all of a sudden it's like, oh, hmm, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sleeping and nobody woke me up. It's, yeah, the, the, it's waking up the next day feeling like, 
refreshed and like, oh, yeah. <laughs> what or is the this? feeling of like, I'm tired and I can just go to bed. I don't need yeah. to like feed the kids dinner, clean the house, do yeah. the kids' bedtime, fight them to brush their teeth. Yeah. I can just be like, I'm going to go to bed now. Yes. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> Good night, world. Yeah. But I will say that like the flip side, which is interesting, which I've noticed about myself, is that I think that because Greg has just over the past four years, especially just had so much more practice in being the one parent around that's got to like shuffle everything and spin all the plates. Like he's just more comfortable with that. And I think that when like right now, for example, he is away just, he left yesterday just overnight to drop a bunch of stuff off at my grandparents' house that we're going to try to store for when we travel. Um, And he should be coming home this afternoon evening um, and anytime that's going to happen, I have this little like, <laughs> I have to be the single parent. Oh my God, I'm going to die. Um, but then I actually noticed that when it, I'm called upon to do it, it like kicks in and it's actually easier in some ways than when I'm like kind of half doing it with him. And I'm kind of like, uh, you do the dinner. <laughs> like, you, can you just, can you just help him? Br- I'll brush his teeth. You put him to bed, okay? Let's, like, let's negotiate. Um, but when you're just called upon to do it, I feel like in some ways I, like, rise to it. And I'm just kind of like, oh, look, look, now I'm, like, a parent. And I'm cooking. And I'm doing all the things. And it's actually not as crazy as I thought it would be. Um, which I just think is interesting because um, I think you get I get mentally in the space of like oh, I can't do all that stuff yeah <laughs> and then I just do it's okay so yeah. we so we got we got rather excited about the chat of sleep there but yes. um <laughs> which is every parent's uh, chat isn't it yes. um but how was your transition from being a parent in med school to being a parent um in residency um yeah. because and obviously that's a big difference like, the sunny south to new england with yeah. Yeah. a, a five-year-old and like a baby or a toddler at that point yeah. um so there was definitely like a transition obviously from like being home with liliana all the time to being a med student and there were different phases to being a med student obviously there's like coursework and clerkships and research and all that um and then there's a transition from that to residency but on the whole the the time investment and the like perpetual time investment of residency is just so much more than medical school right because like yes, you're in classes during the coursework, but then that's like a day job kind of thing. And then you're at least home in your home space. And then clerkships, it's like, you'll have a chunk of time where you're on some crazy clerkship, but then you're not anymore. Right. And then your sub eyes and those rotations, you can really have a lot of control in fourth year. And then, like I said, my research years, I was again, doing like a day job and then working from home. So I felt like there was a lot more like breathing room in medical school because things would ease up and then get intense and then ease up and residency that's true to some extent like obviously like being on like an inpatient rotation where you're working 12 hours a day six days a week is different from being on outpatient but on the whole it doesn't really let up in the same way Um, because even outpatient is a lot of work and you're 
you have a panel of patients and you have a work list and you have backup and you have things that you're called upon to do outside of the clinics and you know longitudinal things you're supposed to be working on and getting done and so it doesn't really let up and then it are in our case it changes every two weeks so you can't really get a rhythm like i feel like greg like he could never figure out what i was doing or what you know i'd be like no like don't you get it by now like on tuesdays i have the evening clinic except when i'm doing my makeup clinics from nepal which it could be a different day of the week five times i do that and I usually do five clinics, except when I do this many clinics. And now I'm on this and I have six days a week, but this is a 24. Like, don't you get it? He's like, no. This sounds very understand. familiar, by the way. I yes. never know <laughs> what the heck you're doing. Like, I just know you're not here right now. Um, and so, and then I think the other thing that was really hard in time investment wise about outpatient is just, I think that parents who are, more efficient in their the general way that their mind works and the general way they handle tasks will have more ease incorporating their work and their home life whereas for me it takes me a longer time to like do my notes and to like wrap up the patient care I've done that day and make sure I've like all right do I feel good about that decision do I need to read something and so you know it's harder for me because I have to make that decision point when clinic actually ends and I've seen my last patient. Do I want to stay and work on my notes now and work on stuff now? Or do I want to save that for after the kids are in bed, essentially? Because like once I walk through that door, literally I haven't even put my stuff down and there's like two people on me, right? <laughs> it's like literally like they like run me over, like... <laughs> They race each other. I have to like tell them to stop because they will like fight each other. To, like get to me first. I'm like, don't do that. Don't do that. You're going to make your brother cry. No, stop it. Um, and so I've tried before to like get, oh, I'm just going to get this done. Like while you're also talking to me and like that doesn't work great. And by the time they're all in bed and actually in bed and staying in bed and not coming back out five times, it's late and I'm tired. And I've like eaten a meal and I'm all like, oh, I just want to go to sleep. And so a lot of times I'll stay and try to work, but then I'm coming home later and I'm missing that time, that like hairy dinner time. <laughs> I'm missing that. And so I found it really, really difficult to figure out how to make that work. And I think that I've tried all different ways and nothing is perfect. Um, but I think people who are just naturally kind of quicker and getting stuff done will just have a better balance with that and I think one thing that's really kind of been frustrating for me about just medicine in general but I think especially when you have something significant you're balancing your time against like your family life is that I feel like I've gotten a lot of like advice that I like should be faster but not necessarily advice about how to like make that happen like I even remember as a sub eye when I was like trying to get all my notes done and they're like, you got to figure out how to do your notes faster or you're going to have a lot of difficulty with like balancing your home and work life. And I was like, cool story. Can you help me with that? <laughs> like, that sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I also think there's like a learning curve and there's a certain point to which like you start at a certain place and you grow. But, you know, if you start on one side of the distribution like I do, then even as you grow, you're still not going to be fast. Um, 
so I think that's one of the most challenging things for me to balance is just feeling like it's hard for me to get it all done and there's so much that bleeds into the rest of the time and it's really difficult to just like be compartmentalized about time even now that I'm part-time just doing acutes and I don't even have a panel there's still times when it's like oh I gotta check this thing and make sure that nothing went crazy with this lab or somebody actually made this phone call I asked them to make and so that can bleed into your home time as well um so I think you know, going back to just like the time balance with residency, there's just a sheer amount of like time that is just more time than any other period. But there's also the fact that there's, in my experience in primary care, there's not these like clean lines necessarily where like now I'm working, now I'm not working. It's really challenging. And I think some people are pro definitely some people are better at doing that than I am. Um, but, but I find I it really challenging to have those kind of clear lines about home life and work life. But I do feel like like talking to a lot of uh, sort of uh, doctor doctor uh, families, but also just any families. Like when you have kids, even even if at one point you were really good at doing that, once you've got kids, they that, that takes over your life. So however however good you were at separating uh, life and work before, it becomes so much more harder. With yes kids, and you can never get it perfect I think. and now we've got the whole like remote school mm. thing folded in and the whole pandemic and that's just been like insanity <laughs> <laughs> as we, we were saying before we can definitely do an entire different podcast on uh, parenting during covid right that's <laughs> oh my gosh yeah it's yeah. been it's been crazy. Oh, or like telehealth during COVID. Yeah. I feel like there's been, <laughs> Anything I know this is just an COVID. audio, but I feel like there's been so many moments in the past six months of just like, yeah. <laughs> uh, just for the, just for the listeners, there was a lot of uh, hand gestures going on, which we will not tell you about. <laughs> right. It's like, I'm on the phone with someone who's like speaking Spanish and I'm trying to figure out what they're telling me. They're like speaking super fast. And, you know, Bodhi comes over and he's like, mama, I need about, and I'm like, and so he says, he just whispered, so, mommy, I need, no, 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 I, I still can't, <laughs> I still can't hear you whisper to me about your Pokemon while my patient is talking to me in it's, Spanish about It's, it's so real. Yeah. I'm just seeing like the, the idea of just being chased around the house while you're trying to have a serious conversation on the phone and your child is chasing you around the house trying to get attention. And it's like, yes. Yeah. I have literally had to lock myself in my bedroom multiple <laughs> occasions. Um, yeah. Yes, telehealthing from home is its own world. It's special. <laughs> but um yeah, I think yeah. I think that it's been it's been challenging. And then, you know, and residency, you know, with the daycare at during med school, again, depending on what rotations I was doing and what phase I was, there were chunks of time when I was the one dropping off and or picking up. Um and then chunks of time when I wasn't. And um, residency, I was very seldom the person to be doing drop-off or pick-up. And so I felt, when I did go there, I felt, like, kind of alienated because I felt that sometimes there was this kind of, like, oh, Bowden's mom. Like, I've never seen you before. And, like, there was one time when, like, they were all in the playground and I went to pick him up and he, like, ran at me he was like mommy and he like runs up to me and gives me a hug and the woman like checking off the kids like asked for id 
and I was like I don't have my ID on me like I have my badge I'm still wearing like is that okay and she was oh I guess so kind of thing and I was like how about the fact that the child ran up to me (laughs) is that okay does that like identify me (laughs) but just like that feeling of like you know being asked to show identification for like being the parent of your own child is just like so upsetting and you know one of his teachers I went to his like preschool graduation and I like thanked the teacher for everything he'd done for him and how much fun he'd had and da 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 and he was just like oh you're Bowden's mom like I never thought I'd see you like he just made some like off the cuff comment about how like he doesn't know who I am and I was like that's like so unhelpful dude like <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> and I and I felt in general and I don't know if it was just because it was like a different environment and that's just something you know different about the folks who were working there or it was just the fact that they just didn't see me as much as like the folks at the daycare other daycare we were at saw me but I felt like there was always this kind of like who are you um which was like not not great not a great feeling um and then kindergarten started for him early uh, basically, he missed the cutoff by one day for public school, but we thought since he'd been in a daycare setting so long, he was like school ready. And so we enrolled him in the Catholic school. Um, and it turns out that academically, what kindergarten meant in that setting was very different from what we were prepared for. And I think that that's another thing. Um, again, like in public setting like nothing you know I'm not gonna go on like a diatribe about like you know what schools grade and what schools not and what they should do and the other but I think in general there's been this move over the past couple decades in this country towards making kindergarten first grade academically Um, and so that wasn't really where what Bowdoin needed like he wasn't academically in first grade. He was socially ready for kindergarten. And I think he was academically ready for what kindergarten was when I was in kindergarten in the eighties. Um, but he wasn't ready to be like copying sentences and like thinking about beginning, middle and ending of stories and like doing all these things that really pedagogically are more appropriate for an older, in my opinion, an older class level. And so when the pandemic hit and everything got moved to home, we were expected to continue to do those things with him, but then like scan them and send them in for him to like get graded. And it was just too much. It was just too much. I mean, we were obviously working in the surge and there was a lot of inpatient and then we were doing like crazy telehealth. So everything was just like really intense at work. So my husband was doing a lot. He wasn't getting as much work because of the pandemic, but he still had some stuff going on. And then like to force this kid to do something that he wasn't really ever academically ready for at that point anyway, and to be trying to like sit him down in our house and like make him do this stuff and like figure out how to print things when you don't have a printer and like scan things when you don't have a scanner. And it was just like, nope, (laughs) nope. So, you know, at one point, the teacher was just like, you know, I don't have a lot of like papers from voting. We're like, yeah, we're going to do kindergarten again. <laughs> like, yeah. Not... Um, and so we ended up enrolling him in the public school um, now. And so now there's this whole setup where he's rem- um, in person, 
but only two hours a day in the afternoon. And then my daughter, who's 10 in fifth grade, she does two days a week in person and three days a week remote. Um, and everything else for my son is on Google Classroom and we're kind of expected to do it. Um, some of it's videos, which is nice that can occupy him, like story time, they read books over the video and they'll do music stuff and gym stuff. Um, but I think on the whole, this is not unique to being a doctor parent at all. This is like all parents who work, but like on the whole, just like trying to balance your own working life with the expectation to like educate your child in your home is just a huge source of stress, I think. Um, and a lot of times I've just felt like, particularly with Bowdoin, like Lillian is really kind of self-sufficient and really internally motivated. And she does all her meetings and all her assignments and she'll come to me if there's anything that she's having difficulty with. But with Bowdoin, it's like, I feel all this pressure, like I'm supposed to be teaching him all this stuff and he's supposed to be doing all this stuff to like get this early childhood education that he needs so much. And I just don't know if I'm like equipped to do it you know not, first of all i'm not a teacher him. yeah you're not a teacher <laughs> so like when i'm trying to teach him phonics and stuff and then he's just like the 20th time that he's like making some joke to distract from him paying attention i'm just like ah! <laughs> 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 uh. oh um my goodness. but like it's interesting because i think it like it is a, a familiar sentiment to me as as a parent who has a very time demanding job as a mother in medicine I think that one of the overarching issues is just feeling like you're not doing your best at either one right it's like feeling like I am not as as good of a doctor as I could be if I could spend all of my time just becoming a good doctor and I'm not as good of a mom as I could be if I could just be around more and know more of all the ins and outs of what's going on and have more energy and time to devote and so there's this perpetual tendency I think to come from like a place of lacking which can be really destructive and difficult for the psyche and I think that one of my efforts has been to try to just shift my mentality around it rather than the reality of like how many hours I'm at work and how many hours I'm at home just trying to shift my expectations um, is helpful um, but I think that there's always these times when it, you feel like you're coming up short and I think that like pandemic schooling has been one of those times mm -hmm. that it's just felt like even now that I'm like, obviously I'm here right now, I'm working part-time. My schedule is a lot more forgiving than it was before I graduated. But there's also just this like, but I mean, I got all this other stuff to do and all this planning and blah, blah, blah. And like, I can't, I can't spend my whole day or my whole morning just like educating my child when there's all this other stuff going on in my life. But then it feels like, well, why not? Why can't I do it? I'm supposed to be doing it. That's apparently the expectation that's been placed on me. So like, why am I not meeting it? And I think that particularly probably parents who go into medicine and mothers who go into medicine, it's like, you're probably a person who's uh, got a little bit of a perfectionist tendency and who's pretty self-exacting if you're, if you made it this far, right? So 
you're going to have that tendency to be like, well, this is the thing I'm supposed to be doing. Like, why can't I do it and excel at it kind of thing? Um, How did you, what was your toolkit to try and combat that? This is a very, like, this is a very common thing for sure. And everyone deals with it in a different way. But what was your toolkit to try? Because you were saying you tried to change your perspective. How did you go about doing that? So I think that most of it has to do with trying to be like a little bit more intentional. Um, And it's really interesting we're having this conversation now because the past couple of weeks I've felt like really in this like weird funk where I'm like, because I think there's this all this thing, all the mentors I had who talked about parenting and medicine, right? And they were all like, it's not quantity, it's quality. It's not quantity, it's quality. The quality, your children will remember the quality of your parenting, not the hours. They'll remember the quality. And I'm like, okay, quality. But then like, I feel like there's all these times when I'm like, well, I'm freaking tired and I'm a grump. Or like, you know, I'm all messed up. I just got off a couple weeks and nights and I'm all screwed up and I'm like passing out on the couch at, you know, 5 p.m. or like I come home from work and I'm like, just bring the book over here. Like <laughs> I'll read you the book. I just don't want to get up. Um, and then the past couple of weeks I've been a little bit grumpy and I think it's just a combination of like everything, like our life plans being an upheaval and the election and pandemic schooling and trying to figure out my life. And it's, so I think that on the whole, I try, I do try to take to heart the idea of like, if I'm going to make this little carve out this little piece of time, um, I'm going to do it right. Because I do believe that that concept of like quality over quantity does ring true. Um, And I think that the times when the quality is not there, that's when I need to like take stock of the things that helped me improve the quality of my presence. And that usually as someone who's, I'm right on the line, but I think I'm really an introvert because I think that I love like hanging out and I'm a lingerer and I love like talking to people and staying up late chatting and all that stuff. But I think I really recharge doing things on my own, like yoga and meditation and running and these kinds of things. Um, So when I'm seeing that quality kind of doing this, it means that I need to do something for myself in terms of self-care that puts me back in a place where I can offer a better quality of presence with my children. Um, And so that relies on creating that time for yourself. And that can rely on your partner helping you create that time. Like, look, I just need to like do this thing so that I can like stop being a grump. I need to go to this journey dance or I need to go on this run right now or I need an hour to do some yoga because like I'm just like not here for this right now and I I need to be Um, and sometimes it's not available right when you have to work an 80 hour week you can't do that thing and then I think in those times it's about like being compassionate with yourself and being like okay I'm a little grumpy this week I'm not going to be like the one like dressing up and chasing my kid around doing the crazy interactive parenting because I'm, I'm like empty. I'm running on fumes and I need to just, whatever I can do is what I can do. And that like has to be okay this week. Um, And I think that's probably the hardest piece 
again, going back to like, I think a lot of moms, first of all, there's so many expectations placed on moms to be like the backbone of the parenting. And then as a doctor, you came into this being very like probably type A tendency and, and very self-exacting, like I said. So it's really hard to just be like, all right, I'm going to phone it in a little bit right now <laughs> because I have to, because <laughs> there's nothing left. I got to phone it in today. Um, I think it's really hard for people to say that to themselves and accept it. It's like, it, it like flies against all these like deeply ingrained values. Um, but sometimes it's like something's got to give and you got to be gentle with yourself. Um, so I think that's probably the hardest thing to just get in that space and be okay with that. And then I think the second hardest thing is actually finding the way to make the time for yourself. Like I said, to improve your quality of your presence when you're feeling really out of it, but you might have the time. It's actually like making that time and putting in that time to take care of yourself. Um, and then just investing in the quality of the time. I think. And with so on the other side of that, I feel like, so you've talked a lot about working on the quality of the time that you're spending with your kids and trying to figure out how to get the balance on that side. How did being a mom in, in med school, but especially in residency, affect how you shaped your medical education and affected what your goals were during residency and how you chose to spend elective time and what you chose to pursue oh, oh, as a resident? Um, so I think that like, by the time I'd hit residency, I think I'd already like kind of internalized this idea that like, I wasn't going to be doing as much crazy stuff. But you know, that being said, I still did global health trips. So I, I was able to do some pretty crazy stuff, all things said and done. I went to Cuba, I went to Nicaragua, I went to Nepal. So wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Amazing. That was pretty crazy. <laughs> that's wonderful. Um, but I think that, you know, in terms of being able to just put in the time to do all of the research projects and all of the extra community stuff and all of the multiple well-planned away electives um, that my colleagues could do, I think by the time I'd hit residency, my experience in med school was already like, yeah, I knew that. Like I wasn't doing that when I was doing my own rotations as a sub-I or like away rotations or things like that. I already kind of knew that that wasn't going to be something I could invest the necessary time and energy in to make happen. And so I think I just had to accept that as a resident to some extent. But you still did do a lot of interesting things. So how did you choose what was going to balance, what was going to work? Um, that's a good question. I think that the, the nice part about our residency and the away elective is, is that, you know, the global health electives, a lot of them are like, they're kind of made already, right? Like you have a person who's been going on these trips and you just kind of have to like sign up for the trip and like fill out the papers and pay the money and go to the thing at the time that they say. And so there's a certain amount of like background stuff that's already kind of done and set. Um, and then for me, travel is like a huge outlet for me and travel is like a huge part of my identity and a huge part of where I 
am nourished and where I grow as a person, just like taking in new experiences and new people. Like, I feel like I'm coming alive just talking about it. Like, I love that. And so for me, that's like a practice in self-care, right? Is like going on a trek in Nepal and like going to some remote village that's two days walking distance from the road is like a gift to me, right? That's like an amazing gift. And so for me, I thought of it as like, this is part of what I was saying about like recharging myself and getting to a place where I'm connected with myself. And I have that quality of presence to offer to the people around me because I'm like grounded in myself. So I could kind of file it under that. Whereas like, there are electives that I kind of like thought kind of half baked in my head. And I still like kind of wish I'd done, you know, like, oh, I wish I'd hung out with the cardiologist more and like gotten better at my EKGs and like done all this other cool stuff. And oh, my, you know, research was a little bit, you know, but like, you know, that wasn't where I could put the energy. And like, likewise, centering was just something, centering pregnancy was something I felt really passionately about. And again, even though I think I'm an introvert at the end of the day, I love like mediating discussions. Like I love, you know, I even remember loving like watching professors do that, like hearing what one person had to offer from the reading and being like, oh, that ties in with what so-and-so said. And like, what does so-and-so think about that? Like, I love that. I think it's really brilliant. It's a brilliant way to have people interact in a space is to have them like build off of each other's insights in this very intentional way. And that's essentially what centering care is, but it's like with regards to your health, have a conversation in which people build off each other's insights with regards to your health. And so I love that. And I love being the person who helps like sew those pieces together. And so again, it had something that was like intrinsically recharging for me, even though there was a lot of like more thankless work in terms of like <laughs> meetings and everyone being mad about things not working and da 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 like yes but like at the end of the day it was great and I kept getting getting called in to like teach prenatal yoga and stuff and I was like this is fabulous I love this <laughs> um so I think for me a lot of the extra what was extra ended up being things that had some already like intrinsic recharging value to me um almost selfishly but like I said selfishly has like an application beyond yourself in terms of like keeping you sane as a parent that's beautiful I really like that I want to be mindful of your time because I know we're getting close to 2 30 and you're gonna have to pick up pretty soon mm -hmm. um but is there anything else you wanted to make sure you share with us um let's see I guess it's like I was thinking about the the conversation that we had when we went to the um the conference and it was so interesting right because like all these like women came up to us afterwards like wanting to have more information and I think that there's like there is this big question mark around like how do you do this as a woman in medicine who wants to have a family um and I think that there still exists this big push in professional women in general, this idea of having it all, where it's like you're expected to excel in the things that you want to pursue in your professional life and also be this like perfect parent. And like I said, I think that it's really, really easy to fall into that place of feeling like you're coming from a space of lacking and of not enough. 
And I think that the overarching kind of message that I would put out there is that first of all, like you are enough (laughs) and you don't have to, this idea of having it all, like to me has at this point become something really meaningless. Like what is having it all? That's not a real thing. That's not life. Life is not this beautiful, polished magazine cover. Like life is life and it's messy and it has strikes and gutters and ebbs and flows. And that's what your life is. There's no like, there's no end point. There's no summit. There's no like, this is having it all. It's just like, this is your life that you, you wake up into each morning and you live and (laughs) it is, it is your life. And I think that, I guess the other piece would be just that idea that you are enough and you don't have to have it all. Doesn't mean that there won't be days when you feel that sense of like, this is not where I want to be. And I think it's also important, I guess it's a lesson I learned from dealing with postpartum depression is like, it's also important to accept that you're feeling that, right? Like, just because I say you're enough and I say that, you don't have to have it all and whatever you're doing is your life and it's fine. Doesn't mean that I'm invalidating the mornings that you wake up or the nights you go to sleep and you feel like this sucks and this wasn't the day I wanted to have. And that wasn't how I wanted to show up at work. And that wasn't how I wanted to show up for my kids. And it just didn't, it didn't come together today or this week. Like that's also okay to feel that way and to accept that. Um, And then to not let it define how you move forward, right? To just be like, okay, that was that. And then tomorrow's tomorrow. And if I have an idea of what I want to do differently, I'm going to try to implement that. And if I'm in a place where this is just going to be tough for the next week because I'm working nights, okay, that's where I'm at right now. So I think it's like combining that idea of like, you don't need to be any certain thing, but if you feel that pull, that's also okay to feel that you don't have to, you know, feel like I have to bury that feeling of being dissatisfied because it's, because it's silly, right? It's not, everyone feels that even if we know that it's not helping us. Um, And I guess going along with that, I would say find people in your life who accept that concept, right? Because I think there's a lot in the world of like mommy wars, there's so much insecurity. And there's so much that you might get bounced back to you like, well, I did it perfect. And I don't know, or like, well, you can't get upset about that. Like, da da da. find the people in your life, whether they're moms or parents or not, find the people in your life that when you bounce how you're feeling off of them, they will sit with it and hold it with you and reflect it back to you and not like judge you and not try to fix it right away and because that's important I think for everyone but I think particularly when you're trying to balance these two very challenging things yeah that was beautiful that was so amazingly well put I have some wrap-up questions and mm-hmm. you already just answered them all so I don't even need to give them to you <laughs> Um, and we've also established that we've got a lot of other podcasts to make with you yeah. out of this one. Oh so, you know, <laughs> you're like make 10 more podcasts with you and Greg. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. This has been yep. a total pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Bye. 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 Well, thank
thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us. That was a really, really good episode, wasn't it, Alice? That was so peaceful. I feel peaceful after that. What were any particular highlights for you out of that interview? I mean, mine, I'll just mention now. It's very nice to have a guest that will uh, answer the two uh, regular wrap-up questions without even being asked them. So that's <laughs> that's always quite nice. <laughs> Sarah, the always superstar. I think, to me, the thing that stood out the most was Sarah discussing how mentors would always tell her that time with your children, it's really quality, not quantity, but when you're a resident and you're exhausted and you're discombobulated by working sometimes days and sometimes nights, sometimes the quality of the time spent with your children is impacted and you can't really be there a hundred percent, even in the limited time you have. And it makes me think of the games that we've developed recently where I just like lie on the floor and children climb on me and they have a great time and I do absolutely <laughs> nothing. And it's fabulous. And I feel like we just need to have a bit of grace with ourselves as as working parents, as anybody who isn't with their children 100%, 100% and has all of that parent guilt building up because you're not with them 100%. And then when you are with them, you feel like you need to be so present and yet you're tired and you just need to finish your work and go to bed and like eat something to have a bit of grace with yourself and say, you know what? I can phone it in. I can say, you bring me the book and I will read it to you. I can just lie on the floor and have children climb on me. And that's okay sometimes. And they still know I love them and, and we well, can make it work for all of they, us. And they actually, most of, the, most of the time, probably don't notice the difference. The, the, the idea of you <laughs> lying on the floor and being climbed upon is really fun for them. And so yeah. it, it's not really much a difference than you maybe running around the house with them, you know, and I do the yeah. same thing. Like I'm a working parent, I'm working from home mostly at the moment, but you know, I have, I have uh, chronic pain and fatigue. So there are days like where I am really fatigued and can't do all the running games, but the lying on the floor game is perfect because the kids it's love it wonderful. and you get to rest and not go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it has started turning into having uh, blankets and cushions um, and uh, like the sofa cushions being piled on top of you instead which I'm starting to realize is quite a ploy because that means they bury you. They Then you can't see them and then they can get away with things. <laughs> like eating candy canes off the Christmas tree. <laughs> yeah, seasonal problems. Anyway, if you want to get in contact with us uh, to let us know uh, any feedback or you'd like to share a story with us, we can read out on the podcast or you'd like to be interviewed or know people like to be interviewed or you just want to say hi. How can people contact us, Alice? Well, they could email us at drmumpodcast at gmail.com. They can also reach out on all the socials at Podcast. Correct. Well done. You know, you got this. You don't I really know. do social media. I'm proud of you. I've gotten so good at this all the socials business, and I don't even know what that phrase means. I just know I'm supposed to say it. And all the socials in this time, as always, means Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook? Yeah, that's it. Well the done. Book on Facebook. <laughs> and uh, do uh, do uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you enjoy it, because if you subscribe. The episode appears magically on your device and it's just there. And then you don't have to then be prodded by us to go, here's an episode. Hello. And then you don't have to have us nag at you, which is quite nice. 
um and do share it with people if you think they'll be interested because you know yeah. we hope we hope these podcasts uh will be of comfort help advice and entertaining for all those who who need it so for anybody who's in need of a bit of a bit of grace a bit of positive thinking about challenging parenting in difficult times yeah well i think we should probably say goodbye because you have to get back to work <laughs> i do i should go do my job <laughs> well, uh, thank you for listening and we'll see you again next week bye friends the dr mama podcast is presented by alice kaufman and produced mixed and edited by alex coming who also provided the original music 